My name is Emily Botine, and you're here for Anatomy of a Radio Piece. It says Anatomy of a Radio Place on my card, but it's actually Anatomy of a Radio Piece. And as I mentioned, this is a story about a collaboration. I would say that collaboration can take many forms. Um, do you remember the movie Sideways? Well, I was I, I thought of I thought I had read this, and then I recently reread it. But supposedly the two uh, writers of that. Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor, they always write everything together. So literally, they are at a computer with two keyboards. This is a very different story of collaboration. So I would say um, collaborations can take many forms. We're going to start by listening. We're going to listen to the whole piece. It's about 10 minutes long. Um, and it's called Pirate Station. And it aired on February 5th of this year on The Next Big Thing. Um, it does, it does take a while to get through it, 10 minutes, so, but I figure if the piece is about it, I want you to hear it. Um, and I don't know about you, but I have a hard time listening in groups, so I'm going to turn off the lights. For the first 24 hours, the pirate station broadcasts the sound of someone coughing nervously. An august beginning. It's not the dead air of the rural FM dial of the desertified Southwest. It's someone coughing nervously. Much nervousness at the beginning of the pirate station and so much nervous coughing. The next Tuesday, a jazz band is convened so that jazz might be played live on the pirate station. None of these guys has ever had a lesson on his instrument. Three different kinds of jazz are discussed, but none are agreed upon. Cool jazz, smooth jazz, and Afro-Cuban jazz. The pirate station broadcasts the music of this ensemble for six days without ceasing. There's no agreed upon coda. The pirate station just pulls the plug. That fall, after weeks of casting about, a symphony is written by filling in notes at random on a staff. A local orchestra attempts to pick out the piece without rehearsal. However, the symphony is considered too sentimental for broadcast. A bird call program is surprisingly popular, with the great horned owl coming in for the most requests. These issuing from the sheriff's office. Maybe it's the lonely night patrolman of the graveyard shift. The sounds of southwestern cacti are broadcast for several weeks, though it is generally agreed that cacti make no sounds. The pirate station branches out. It 
broadcast over 12 nights a comparative study of whistles, including whistles that your high school track coach favored when he was in a bad mood, and that guy up the street who can whistle like nobody's business. Briefly, the pirate station backpedals reluctantly and agrees to play musical recordings of the conventional sort, but only if the selections alternate in the following way. Salsa, mariachi, tejana, reggae, tuvan throat singing, toy piano concertos, music released in 1964, and songs sung by tone-deaf people. And yet these categories are considered too easy to fill. And after a week or so, the pirate station loses interest. The pirate station broadcasts news programs, but never at the top of the hour, and only when bootlegged from other stations. The substance of the news in these programs is altered slightly in order to mislead. The weather is said to be sunny no matter what the weather. The stock market is said to be going down without respite. The high school football team is said to be losing. Newcomers are said to be bringing prosperity to the town, and the war is always said to be going smoothly with little loss of civilian life. Upon the return of the pirate station employees from the holidays, a period of reflection sets in. The microphone is turned on, and all the disc jockeys gather around and speak of their uncertainty about the pirate station. What could be done differently with the medium? What can the pirate station do that no one has done before? Has all hope been lost? Is complete liberty not terrifying in some fundamental way? A recording of the staff meeting is then played backwards, sped up slightly, with the harmonious conclusion first and the confusion at the end. Pirate Station sends people out into the street humming with contact mics, the only requirement being that they hum songs with the word joy in the title, though not that horrible song by Three Dog Night. Inducing strangers and townspeople on the street to hum along is considered particularly exciting. A contest is announced on the Pirate Station to find the person who has the best radio voice. Some heavy woes in this suit just dropped. Give me some speech just dropped. 
This person is then tickled mercilessly on air and driven blindfolded to a distant metropolis. The sounds of people making love are broadcast for the entire month of May. Rising to a crescendo of simultaneous orgasm on May the 14th. And then dwindling away, as crescendos do, by the 1st of June, just in time for summer. The doors of the pirate station are thrown open and anyone is invited in. The building that houses the pirate station is demolished and soon the pirate station begins moving, night after night, never staying in one place for more than a few hours. Interns carry the transmitter in its small red toolbox. Pirate station becomes the condition of all possible sounds so that everything is a song and there is no commercial interruption and no fundraising drives. The people who began the pirate station grow old, marry, have children, make out wills, and leave the pirate station behind. The sound of freight trains begins to sound suspiciously like broadcasts on the pirate station. The sounds of cheerleaders goading on the local football team are definitely pre-recorded. The federal authorities become obsessed with the possibility that the pirate station is continuing to broadcast, but at wattages so meager and in places so far flung that no one at all can tune the programming. Still, this is unacceptable. Pirate Station refuses to cooperate with finding the enemy. Pirate Station refuses to inform on its neighbors. Pirate Station no longer takes photographs the way it did when young. Pirate Station once thought gardening was satisfying. The Pirate Station makes its own bricks, using mud from the backyard. The Pirate Station forgets the name of distant relations and people it met only recently. The Pirate Station goes off its medication. The Pirate Station quarrels and is testy about things that never used to bother it. The pirate station eats infrequently. The pirate station loses interest in worldly things. The pirate station never calls. The pirate station imagines it can hear the music of the spheres, 
and begins to totter down a long, narrow corridor in which many dead friends beckon to it. But just when it is about to sleep, its eternal sleep, the pirate station reconsiders and remarks that it has work yet to do. So for those of you who just joined us, that was Pirate Station, and it aired on The Next Big Thing in February of this year. And as I said, this is really the story of a collaboration. Um, I'm one person who worked on this. There are really basically three people who worked on it. It was me, uh, the writer Rick Moody, and Sherry DeLise, who is a radio producer based in Australia. But I'm the person who's talking today, so but I didn't want to leave them out. So we have them here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I wanted to tell you a little bit about what's going to happen today. I was asked to talk about this piece and it really about the logistics of it. So I'm going to walk you through what we did and all the sort of twists and turns it took. Um, and I guess I'm curious to hear from the start from you, how would you describe this piece? Not what did you think of this piece? What, what kind of radio is this? What's like, what genre is it? Feature. Feature. Is there any other word? Specialized sound art. Uh -huh. Yeah, a lot of people say that, and I guess I want to say from the start that if you think this is going to be a session about making sound art, it's really not. Um, I have no idea how to make sound art, and I think what you'll hear is, you know, I was very scared of this piece to start. And what I want to tell you is that the way I approached this piece was using the skills and sort of the intuition that I've had from very other, making very other different kinds of radio. So if you hear that piece and think, oh God, that's not the kind of radio I want to make, I wouldn't worry about that. This is a piece, this is about making radio and about, um, you know, some of the challenges 
we're going to go through, as I said, you know, what we did to get there, and then we'll listen to some of the tracking sessions. We'll listen to some of the various um, versions that, that that we heard and that we went through. Um, the origins of this collaboration actually began at last year's Third Coast Festival, so it's in a way appropriate to speak about it. But the idea actually came a few weeks earlier to the next big thing, um, which was a show that many of you may know. It was hosted by Dean Olsher, and this is how it started. October 12th, 2004, 10.57 a.m. To Emily Botin from Dean Olsher, subject forward my idea. Tell me what you think. And then actually, since we have one of our collaborators in the audience, Rick, I thought you might want to read what you wrote. It's probably got a lot of typos in it. Hey, Dean, last December I encountered for the first time in my life a really amazing pirate station. It was mainly staffed by a 200 CD jukebox that was programmed on random, but it was quite simply the best radio station I've ever heard. Brackets. Rick goes on to explain more details. Anyway, I wrote the attached, a sort of elegy about my fondness for the pirate station and the idea thereof. And my proposal is that you let me do it with a real actor reading it and with all the sound effects. Perhaps we could find someone else who might want to produce it with me. So that was how this started. And Rick basically, he attached a story. It was basically a radio script, um, what he called you know, his elegy to the radio series. It was all written. It was done. Um, and as I said, I'm going to try to talk about this piece very honestly. And it's a little scary with Rick in the room, partly because the first thing I would say is I didn't want to work on this piece. And it really had nothing to do with this. It's all about, you know, when you're working on a weekly show, I actually went back and looked at my September and October of last year, and I had just been producing like crazy. And the last thing I wanted was something dropped on my lap. And so my first lesson, this is I hope to be, you know, giving you a bunch of lessons, is don't ignore. Dean e emailed me, and I looked. I went through all my emails. There's no email back. But the second lesson is don't email bad news. So actually, I remember going into Dean's office and saying, you know, of course I didn't say directly, I don't want to work at this. I said, well, I certainly can't give you an answer right away. Just basically like, I don't have time for this. Um, so the first two lessons are don't ignore people and don't email bad news. And I think, you know, I know when I thought back, I, w I was very busy at that time. But I also, you know, honestly, I was sort of scared of this. I thought, as I said before, this is not the kind of radio I know how to do. I have no idea how to approach this. And I don't think there's anything I can bring to this. Um, but, you know, no's don't always work, and this ended up on my plate. So I had to think about, okay, how am I going to make this work for me, for the show, which is the next big thing, and for the piece, which are all sort of three different things, you know, with different demands. Um, and then we were at this festival last year, and Rick was there, and Sherry Delise was there, who I know a lot of you know. Um, and she had just finished up a three-month stint at The Next Big Thing. And I just had this sense that Rick and Sherry would like each other. So we all sat down for lunch, and sure enough, was that the first time you met Sherry? Like, I basically just start, I'm in the background, and Rick and Sherry just start talking about music in a way I have no, I don't know anything about. They're talking about people who I've never heard of. Clearly, this is the ticket. Get them together. 
So I say to Sherry, who's about to leave, I say, you know, do you want to do this? And she's, she seems excited. And that was October 30th when we met, um, November 1st, 2004, to Emily Botin from Sherry Delise. As you can see, this was a project that was based on a lot of email because we're all in different locations. Would love to work with you and Rick, but I felt like a dick just blurting out that I'd like to collaborate on it. Thought might encroach on you, but you say no, and Rick might have other ideas or not want me. Of course, when I email Rick and say, you know, do you want Rick, do you want Sherry to collaborate on this? And he says one word, definitely. Um, and basically, you know, for those of you who've had contact with Sherry Delise, you want her on your team. She's sort of, she has this kinetic personality and she just seems to sort of, you know, bless the project she's around. Um, so that's the end of October of last year. Sherry's about to head back to Australia. Um, but we decide to meet, she's going to Texas before that, we decide to meet in New York um, before she leaves to go over the script and to talk about, to talk about the process. Um, and I'm curious, Rick, I'm actually gonna, Rick is gonna be here for just a few minutes. Rick, do you remember that meeting at City Bakery? Can you tell me what you, your impressions of it? Well, the interesting thing to me about Sherry is that she's incredibly diffuse like her 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 approach to a problem is to is to is to answer it a hundred different ways and then you kind of have to sift a little bit and get her to hone hone in and i i absolutely loved the piece verse that i heard here last year and loved meeting her here but at city bakery i remember getting suddenly scared myself because she had taken the the script of the piece and for each sound cue or idea for what might be a sound cue in the story, she had supplied like 15 different possibilities for sound that might go there. And some of them are really sketchy, like, um, you know, uh, at one point I think there was sound of cactus. I'm like, but cactus don't make any sound. You know, <laughs> she actually had a recording of some guy who had taped cacti, you know. So there was this, at least for me, this intense... Um, you know, kind of tsunami of energy coming back from Sherry. And at first I just had no idea how to harness it. And, uh, and so I was a little worried at that point too. And you also made very clear at that meeting, I mean, one of the things I remember is you saying, I want to be involved. I want to be involved in the sound. Um, and here we had, we had two radio producers and one writer. And we all brought different sort of skills to the table but I would say that Rick is a writer who thinks more about sound than a lot of writers. Rick, Rick really said he wanted to be involved. And I think we were definitely, we were like, yeah, we'd like, to be in, you, we'd like you to be involved. On the other hand, I would say we didn't quite know what that would mean. November 30th, 2004, 11.25 a.m. To Emily Botin from Sherry Delise. Realized after meeting that I know Rick wants to collaborate on sound. Not sure how he means in practical sense. Perhaps you are clearer on that than me. If not, time will tell. So I think it's important to realize that from the start, we were all sort of, I don't know, I would say grappling with our roles and trying to figure out. It wasn't, we had this, at this first meeting, we set up this whole plan for how we were going to get this piece done. Um, we were going to record the narration in the U.S. No, no, no. First, what's going to happen is 
our first idea was Sherry, who has this incredible archive, as Rick alluded to, incredible archive of sound, she was going to build this bed in Australia. She was going to send that to us so that we could play that for the narrator while he you know, recorded the script. And then we would send that back to her, and she would tweak the mix. That's, ex that's kind of what our initial. Um, but we quickly learned, because of time pressures, that was, we had to sort of throw that away. But anyways, I just bring this up to say our roles were, we weren't quite sure of them to start, and I think they changed um, over time. So now Sherry's gone to New York, I mean, gone to Europe, then she's heading home to Australia. Rick and I are uh, still back at home in New York trying to secure this narrator. At least Rick is. Um, December 4th, 2004, 5.02 a.m. To Emily Botin and Sherry Delis from Rick Moody. John Laurie agreed to do the narrator today. The only hitch is we have to record him at home. He's ill and doesn't travel too well. But it won't be difficult because he li only lives about 10 blocks from NYC. So this is kind of exciting. We have John Laurie. He's a celebrity. It's totally, you know, we're all in awe. Um, on the one hand, we're in awe. On the other hand, record him at home? This is New York. One of the things we had talked about at City Bakery was that we wanted this sort of omniscient narrator. And, you know, as the producers, our ears started pick, pick, perking up. December 5th, 2004, 6.15 p.m. to Emily Botin from Sherry Delise. Are you worried about recording Laurie at his home? It can't be a quiet place if it's in New York. My gut response is that it's not something I'd ever do. December 6th, 2004, 2.54 p.m. to Rick Moody from Emily Botin. Do you know if he's sick sick? As in, for a long time? Or is it something he'll get better from and we should wait? I think I might be able to find a studio closer. So it's sort of like, huh? December 7th, 2004, 9.10 a.m. To Emily Botin from Rick Moody. Yes, he's very sick, actually. He was very clear about wanting to do this in his house. I don't even think he stands that easily, much less goes out of his house. So this is not good news. Um, obviously, plenty of times you will want to record someone in their home if you're doing, you know, it depends on the project. But this, this is how are we going to get the voice of God with New York traffic? So the next rule, who's the producer? I'm the producer. Take this into my own hands. It's not fair to ask Rick this. Rick's John's friend. Um, it's not his job. So you need to sort of take it back to who, who's, who's running this show. December 8th, 2004, 3.27 PM, to Rick Moody and Sherry Delise from Emily Botin. Just spoke with John Lurie. He said, depending on the day, sometimes I can come in. So we, sent a we set a tentative date for Monday, December 20th at the Next Big Thing Studios. The next rule I would say, I don't know if this is a rule because I think plenty of people would disagree with me. I think sometimes you go out of your way for people to get something done. I, and, what I, and I remember, I mean, basically this is not going out of your way in a big way, but John Laurie said, will you come pick me up in a taxi and bring me back to the station? And I remember one of my fellow producers was like, you're doing what? You're bringing someone here? And in a way, it seems really, I thought it was just like, eh, whatever, it's half an hour, it's eight bucks. So I would say, and, and that's kind of a very small version of what going out of the way obviously could mean. But I think sometimes you do go out of the way for people if you want to get something, um, if it means something to you. Um, and so John lived up to his word and came into the Next Big Thing studios. And we recorded him. And you've probably all heard people talk about recording narration. Um, and you know, people in radio always say, you want to have people sound like they're just talking on the phone to you. 
or you know, it should be like they're talking in a bar. Radio works when it's intimate. You know, it should just be a one-on-one -on -one experience. So that's certainly, you know, that is ingrained in my head. Um, I'm going to play you a little bit of what it sounded like when John came in. For the first 24 hours, the pirate station broadcast the sound of someone coughing nervously, an august beginning. It's not the dead air of the rural FM dial of the desertified Southwest. It's someone coughing nervously. Much nervousness at the beginning of the pirate station, and so much nervous coughing. This is how he sounded when he first started. And I have to tell you, I started freaking out. This was not what I thought it should sound like. I was, you know, looking for that sort of intimate reading. But I figured he was warming up, so I thought, okay, we'll let him keep going. Briefly, the pirate station backpedals, reluctantly, and agrees to play musical recordings of the conventional sort. But only if the selections alternate in the following way. Salsa, mariachi, tejana, reggae, Tuvan throat singing, toy piano concertos, music released in 1964, songs sung by tone um, people. And so we started doing all the things that people always tell you to do when you're tracking people. We have a small um, booth, and I was basically, it's about the size of two tables. I'm on the outside doing the controls, and John was inside, and Rick was next to me listening. Basically, we decided to put Rick in the booth with John and read him the lines. Um, it's a little hard because we only we didn't mic Rick, so you don't you don't hear um, you won't hear Rick that clearly. But I can assure you, this didn't necessarily go over that well with John. I don't like this setup here. This is no good if he's going to talk like that. But we, you know, you have to still pursue. In the first 24 hours, the pirate station broadcasts the sound of someone coughing nervously. For the first 24 hours, the pirate station broadcasts the sound of someone coughing nervously. Let's try it again. <laughs> You're getting, I was like, that didn't work. The pirate station broadcasts the sound of someone coughing nervously. For the first 24 hours, the pirate station broadcasts the sound of someone coughing nervously. The next Tuesday, a jazz band is convened so that live jazz might be broadcast on the pirate station. The next Tuesday, a jazz band is convened so that live jazz might be broadcast on the pirate station. This, <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> no good. It's it takes any, like, yeah. I'm trying to imitate his pattern and it it's not happening at all. Yeah. That's sort of me talking to uh, to John. Can you so what do you think of I mean can yeah. Uh, my question had been did he get the script ahead of time and your answer was yes. My other question would which may not be appropriate was did the nature of his illness make it more difficult for him to to function and go in and do a cold reading and warm up a little bit. No, I wouldn't say this was on John's. Um, I think that would be my impression. I don't know, Rick. We, I, I would say it was not. I wouldn't say the challenges with the reading were on John's side. Do you have a? Well, I mean, it, it's. Uh, uh, we'll hear more tape. Yeah. About this, I think the for me the whole tracking session was a big, pivotal, thing. 
Well, yeah, something happened later where it suddenly improved dramatically, I think. I mean, I, found, I like you, found the beginning part really incredibly difficult and hard to sit through. It was heartbreaking somehow. Um, I mean, he's really sick. He's got this MS-like thing where he is neurologically failing. And there's actually a point, I don't know if you have tape of this, where he had to go out for a break. And he went out for the break, and later he said to me, um, that's me, sorry. Um, he said, uh, he told me later, like a few days later, he said, I thought I was going to have to leave right then because he starts getting double vision and auras and he couldn't see the words on the page. And so there is for him significant physical disability involved in, in actually doing the reading. And I should say just as a, as a backdrop, I don't know if anyone knows all of John's work, but there's sort of a spoken word piece on the last um, Lounge Lizard's record called The Yak. And it's like a sort of a fairy tale thing that he does. And it's so incredibly heartwarming and beautiful that it's the thing that made me want to use him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you have a question? Yeah, I just wanted to know how much experience he had with doing narration. He actually does voiceover. A lot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's hear a little, a little bit more. Because there were moments, as Rick said, um, there were moments that I really liked. The pirate station sends people out into the street humming with contact mics, the only requirements being that they hum songs with the word joy in the title, though not that horrible song by Three Dog Night. So to me, that stood out because of one word. Do you, what, does that sound different to you at all? What? Yeah. I mean, basically, he added in a word. And he just, he had, that wasn't in the script. So for me, this was like, oh, this big moment of revelation. So I was like, okay, we'll just, you know, John, like, just you riff off of this. So that's me. Then a little later. Pirate Station branches out. It broadcasts over 12 nights a comparative study of whistles. The Pirate Station branches out. It broadcasts over 12 nights a comparative study of whistles. Including the whistles that your high school track coach favored when in a bad mood. And, and that guy up the street who can whistle like nobody's business. Including whistles that your high school including whistles that your high school track coach used to do when he was in a bad mood. And like that guy up the street who can whistle like nobody's business. Let's do it one more time. Uh, and try not that light. Did okay. anyone hear that? Really hard to hear. Rick, do you hear it? What did you say? Well, you added in the light, right? And I tried to get him to take it back up. We I mean, there are a couple other, there are a couple other grammatical errors that he introduced into the script that make me cringe. Like, there's a, <laughs> you know, he says none are at one point, where, of course, any writer will tell you it's none is. And every time I hear the piece now, I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> so I, and of course, like, at this point, you know, Rick is cringing and I'm celebrating. I'm like, this is this is where the great tracking, you know, is gonna happen. So that to me is you know, it's just it was real it was a hard instance of where of course Rick is knows his words. He knows his he could he could, you know, give this pirate station. And and so we're both kind of we're going at this from different perspectives. Um, by the end of the session, we had an hour and a half of tracking for a ten minute piece. Um, 
and I don't even know how it's going to fit together. I don't, I don't, I remember not feeling confident. You know, we did all these different mic placements and sometimes close micing and asking him to, you know, as we said, riff or, but I don't even, I didn't feel confident that I had one read all the way through that sort of would at least hold together. December 22nd, 2004, 1.55 p.m. To Sherry DeLees from Emily Botine. We recorded Lori. I think it was kind of a bust, but I have some ideas about how to save it, like playing different versions of Lori over each other. Um, so, you know, I wasn't happy with what I got. I don't, I didn't tell Rick, I was too scared to say this directly to Rick at the time. Um, but I think, you know, in retrospect, to me, one of the challenges of the recording session was that we were probably both going for different things. Um, and there's a part of me that thinks I shouldn't have been there. I, there's a part of me that thinks that only one of us should have been there, and it would have been interesting to see, you know, what we could have got, what we would have gotten, you know. But that's sort of that's one of the things about collaborations. Um, some people would say that because we had an hour and a half of uh, tracking, that that was clearly crazy. Um, for a 10-minute piece, you certainly would never do that, you know, for, you know, have that luxury at NPR. Um, and next big thing, an hour and a half was long, but it wasn't crazy. We certainly had over two-hour tracking sessions. Um, but, you know, it is, it is a lot of time. Um, but at this point, you know, there was nothing to do except send the piece, send the tracking to Sherry. Yeah. Can you say more about what the different things were that each of you were looking for? Well, see, I think I was looking for what I always thought you're supposed to find in radio, like this natural voice that would, you know, be this quiet, intimate, just casual reading. But I don't really, I mean, I have to say, I don't entirely know I was thinking that because we definitely had this idea of this omniscient narrator. I think this is an instance of me, again, not knowing how to approach this piece. So approaching this piece with what I know how to do. And I'm not, I don't necessarily think it would have been, I think it could have been kind of weird if he had been riffing the whole time. I mean, I'm not saying, I, I really am not saying, you know, oh, I lost this battle at all. Um, Flawn Williams is a sort of M NPR engineer who, you know, he's an NPR extraordinaire engineer. And he once heard this piece and I mentioned, you know, oh, the tracking was this really hard thing. And he said, oh, God, I think you, you wouldn't have wanted anything different. You wanted that sort of deadpan um, sound. But I think because it so wasn't what I thought I was supposed to be looking for, I couldn't, I just sort of couldn't get on board with it. Rick, what did you want? I mean, I think since, I, since I've done a lot of spoken word stuff and come out of that, angle of the whole thing I wasn't afraid of deadpan but there was still a feeling for me that John was kind of didn't understand the material that was what was really bugging me you know I mean I could have hacked a, a spoken word thing that had that kind of sort of reading you know poetry voice thing if I felt like John understood what the story was about but the deadpan thing to me read as I can't even figure out how to get through this thing, so I'm just going to say these words in the rare instances where I can pronounce all of them because he blew a lot of stuff. And and so that was what was upsetting to me. I did feel that, that towards the end, 
when we took the script away from him and said, you know, we would read him the line and then we would say, just say whatever you want that basically gets to the same thing as the sentence, that he lightened up considerably and, and it was like he was telling me the story a little bit. And I agreed that more affect was nice. Um, so I think that we met in the middle is what happened. Yeah, no, I would totally agree. I also think um, it wasn't until late into the tracking session that I sort of, I don't know, he did something and I heard him and I asked him to come really close and he does it at the end. And then I was like, oh, that's how we should be using John Lurie. I mean, and I do regret not doing that earlier because when he, it's at the end of the piece and he's, he's, he just started to whisper. And then it's just like, oh, I gotta listen to this. I, so I think it was also, you know, it's, I mean, I said, it's sort of like getting starstruck and then being like, oh God, what do we do? I, I didn't know him enough. Like I did go out and rent the movies even before, like I was doing my homework, but it's hard when you, I mean, but you're in this situation all the time when you're just thrust with someone you knew and you don't like, you don't really sort of know how to feel them out. And and if you haven't spoken with him, well, I don't know why he really talks. And so it, we didn't have the luxury to play around with his voice that much before, or I sort of didn't in my mind and thinking about it. But anyways, we send it off to Sherry in Australia. We edit, edit it down. Uh, this is January 10th, 2005, 7.31 a.m. to Emily Botin from Sherry Delis. I can hear John Laurie wasn't that easy to work with, but I thought he sounded not too bad. Thank God. Um, and then Sherry says, I had about five to six hours to work on it today, and I did the layout. It's wild, like Rick said he wanted. I tried to give it a little Tex-Mex flavor, too, since he kind of said it there. You know how it is. Things take a life of their own when you're working on them. All bets are off. I put in a lot of things I hadn't thought of before. Huh. And I think, you know, to Rick's concerns about what, we're definitely both like, we have no idea what we're going to get back. And basically, you know, we had this whole idea that she was going to send us the sounds. We had to scrap that. We sent her the audio of John Lurie. She mixed it, and then she sent this piece back to us. And it seemed like things were moving forward. That was the 10th on January 12th, 2005, 7.23 p.m. to Emily Botin from Sherry Delise. Kind of urgent. Are you still there? Didn't want to say too urgent, but I can't open the Pro Tools session we made. So what she had done was taken what she was working on at work, home, to just test it on her uh, Mac computer. So this is the next rule. Do not go from a PC's Pro Tools project to a Mac-based Pro Tools project unless you know what you're doing, which we didn't. January 26, 2005, to Emily Botin from, from Sherry Delis. It's official. I've gone mad. I realized what I sent you yesterday was only a partial list. Here is the full list of file names. You'll need all um, 180 of them. I've said sorry so many times. It's pathetic, but I'm mortified that you have to do this. So this is sort of the you know dreary um, elements of collaboration, basically, and it's sort of too logistical to go into. But you know, she had been working on a PC um, project. She sent it to me for Mac-based, and I had to rename all the audio files. And the only way I could figure out the names of the audio files was by looking at the comparative size. It was, it was I, I, I really can't explain it, but it was, it was totally um, nerve-wracking. And so let's just look at the calendar also, because timing, of course, always gets into this. This was January 26th when she had gone mad. Um, so I still hadn't been able to open the session. And this piece aired on February 5th, which was a Saturday, which means I have to get it done. We mixed our show on the Thursday. So it's a week 
It's a week before it has to go to air, and it's actually that same day, Rick, I figured out, the day that Cherry said she's gone mad was the day that you told me you were leaving the next Monday for six weeks. And so we had to work on it. We, and, you know, I'm working on a weekly show. It's not like I have time when Sherry tells me that she's gone mad to do anything about it. I'm just like, huh, that's great. I need to finish this week's show, and then I'll work on this. So we are sort of our days to work on this. This was a Wednesday. Rick was going away after the next Monday. So our days to work on this was shrinking, which I will say later I don't think I actually think was a bad thing. Um, and eventually we were able to open it. January 24th, 2005, 5.36 p.m. to Emily Botine from Sherry Delise. The piece has gotten here. I like the idea of you being able to use my session as your sandpit and remix, resculpt as desired. So don't hesitate whatever you want to do. Now, I don't know about what you think, but I think radio producers, and myself included, are incredibly controlling. I. You know, I was really impressed. I wrote down um, what Melissa Robbins said. She said, I would never give this tape to anyone in the earlier session. So for me, Sherry, this was an incredibly generous statement to make. Um, and, you know, I truly believe that she wouldn't have, I mean, I, I don't think the piece would have gotten on the air on the next big thing if Sherry hadn't said that. And the, with the time frame that I was working with, I just had to take, you know, take her by her word, and I didn't even really know if she meant it. <laughs> yeah, I'm certain I meant it. I, I, I remember writing that, and I remember that, yeah, I just really loved that idea as a way of working. It seemed to me like, um, I don't mean to sound overly generous here, but it just seemed to me a really fun thing to be able to give you guys something that you could then mold or remold in your own way yeah and I remember thinking of it like we were kids playing in the sandpit or like I was making the sandpit um, and I kind of built some castles in there but then you could knock them down and do what you wanted or, or reshape them or add wings or whatever so yeah I did mean that you can see why she has her fan club um so Rick and I went to work um part of the initial my initial work was going through you know, Sherry had sent in this version, and then Sherry and Rick, you know, had carefully listened to this and sent me a four-page red and blue um, of notes of things how I should, you know, work on this piece, which was, you know, helpful but also completely overwhelming. Um, and what I think I really needed to do at that point was to listen um, and to stand back a little bit from the particulars and just start to listen to what she sent in. And that's what we're going to do. I'm going to play you, um, we're going to go back and forth between um, the versions. And we're going to start with the end. Um, I think when you, you know, when you're, listening, when you're fixing something or tweaking something, you don't have to start at the beginning. You start where, where you can maybe begin to think you might have an idea of what you should do. Um, these are... They're not two short excerpts. They're a couple minutes long, just because I wanted to give you a real feeling for things. So this is the end of the piece, uh, the version that Sherry sent in. The federal authorities become obsessed with the possibility that the pirate station is continuing to broadcast, but at wattage is so meager and in places so far flung that no one at all can tune the programming. Still, this is unacceptable.
pirate station refuses to cooperate with finding the enemy. The pirate station refuses to inform on its neighbors. The pirate station no longer takes photographs the way it did when young. The pirate station once thought gardening was satisfying. The pirate station makes its own bricks using mud from the backyard. The pirate station forgets the name of distant relations and people it met only recently. The pirate station goes off its medication. The pirate station quarrels and is testy about things that never used to bother it. The pirate station eats infrequently. The pirate station loses interest in worldly things. pirate station never calls. The pirate station imagines it can hear the music of the spheres and begins to totter down a long, narrow corridor in which many dead friends beckon to it. Just when it is about to sleep, its eternal sleep, the pirate station reconsiders and remarks that it has work yet to do. Do you want to think about what you heard on that? Do, are you up for hearing the next version, which you already heard? This is, I also fully realize this is hard listening. Um, does, does anyone want to say anything that they heard in that one? Or you just want to go to the next? We'll go to the next, maybe that's it, yeah. The federal authorities become obsessed with the possibility that the pirate station is continuing to broadcast, but at wattages so meager and in places so far flung that no one at all can tune the programming. Still. Yeah. This is unacceptable. The pirate station refuses to cooperate with finding the enemy. The pirate station refuses to inform on its neighbors.
Pirate Station no longer takes photographs the way it did when young. Pirate Station once thought gardening was satisfying. The Pirate Station makes its own bricks, using mud from the backyard. The Pirate Station forgets the name of distant relations and people it met only recently. The Pirate Station goes off its medication. The Pirate Station quarrels and is testy about things that never used to bother it. Pirate Station eats infrequently. The Pirate Station loses interest in worldly things. The Pirate Station never calls. The Pirate Station imagines it can hear the music of the spheres and begins to totter down a long, narrow corridor in which many dead friends beckon to it. But just when it is about to sleep, its eternal sleep, the pirate station reconsiders and remarks that it has work yet to do. Just for time, I think I won't play it all. So, what did you hear that was different, or did you hear any differences? Yeah. I mean, to me, it seemed almost like a generational thing. It seemed like the fact that it was more classically based music behind the thing at, in the second version or the version that went to air. They both went to air. No. This is a whole other ah. different story. Well, that's anyway. In the second, in the version that you said was the yeah. the final version. Yeah. Um, the fact that it was sort of classical music behind it made me think of the stretch of the pirate station's life as being sort of longer. That it was thinking about its youth or maybe something classical music made How it. How did you react? And it's I, you know I. In a way, I thought about playing both the. It's just it's hard to playing both the pieces in mm -hmm. full. How did you react to the first one? Do you think? I think it made it seem uh, to to me, I guess, because of how my ear is trained that that the the sort of the uh, again I'm just calling it classically themed music resonated for me. It seemed more cinematic. It seemed again like it had sort of a bigger, broader scope rather than the stuff that I sort of recognized as bits and pieces of flotsam and jetsam from pop music. Did you recognize the first song? Did anyone? Did people, yeah. So for me, when I heard that, I was, that was like, it was just too recognizable. I, I, to me, it was like I was thinking about high school. It was like mm -hmm. all these associations. Mm -hmm. And I just completely stopped listening to the piece. 
Now Sherry, and I, I didn't, we, we've been emailing, we had emailed about this, and she, that was exactly what she liked about it. So again, it's just totally, you know, it's so much just people's personal, and I should say, the first, the first version of the piece um, did air on Australian radio, and it's going to air again. Um, so yeah, they both have they both have lives. If there are questions, you guys, you should, you're supposed to come up to this thing. So yeah, um, the second one was so much sparser. The final version that you did was so much sparser and more open, and I was really astonished by how that changed the voice of the narrator. How it completely changed the sense of I. It set his voice off so much more when you had just that spare, sparse, the, the, the violins underneath him, the cello. Um, whereas when there was so much, it felt like it was really competing um, with his voice, and it really almost made his voice seem thinner, made it seem... Was it the same version of his reading? Definitely the same version. And there are also, there are a lot of things in the second version that are in the first version that I love. Like, to me, I like the whistler. Mm -hmm. And um, he's totally there in the first version, it just you just uncovered yeah. a lot of stuff. That's so, what it seemed like so you've done. To me, is... um, I think one of the hard things for me about this piece, and I and this is what I'm trying to say. This is not just about whatever sound art is or whatever. Is you know I'm always my ear. I always want to hear human stories, whatever that means. And I think the first time I heard this piece, it didn't feel human enough. There's so many little mechanical and much more of the fr the but sort of that, noise. yes, but that's just my ear. Mm -hmm. So for me. Switching the music, and I wish Rick had to go to a reading, um, but basically what happened just the list, logistically, when I heard the sitting on the deck of the bay, I was like, oh, God, no. Can't, that's, you know, as I said, too much like high school for me. Um, and I, I don't have a big musical knowledge, and Rick does. So Rick said, he just brought up this guy, Ingram Marshall, who's a contemporary composer. Um, I don't know if anyone knows him. I didn't know him. Um, and brought in this piece, Entrada, which that's, is that piece. And to me, it just, it felt so organic. Um, and it sort of reminded, it, it felt very reptilian too, to me. I kept imagining all these like creatures kind of creeping along. Um, and I, it really was the way that got me to start to like the piece. I mean, and I wasn't, I did not like it, but I was kind of just like, I was, I was sort of doing the coordinating produ as the producer until it, it was the first time that I felt like, oh, you know, I might have something to say about this piece. So it was an important kind of shift. Um, and I guess the only thing I would say is it's important to have that shift because for any piece you do, even if it's a piece you were given that you didn't want to do from the start, you need to become its advocate because that's the only way, you know, you're going to make, you need to make a piece that, you know, you believe in because then you'll be doing better work. Sorry, did you have a question? I actually didn't recognize the, uh, the music, I have to admit that. The first one, just um, just off the bat, first impression, it's um, it was seemed really dark and it made me nervous, and uh, it was exciting. And uh, I actually preferred it mm -hmm. for that. It, mm -hmm. um, it sounded like something you don't hear on public radio. I, I think that was the other part of it that was, um, it just felt new to me. And that sort of made me kind of sit up in my chair. Um, but the other, the other, the second piece worked too for me, but it was a very different reaction. And I, I sort of sat back in my chair like, this is familiar somehow. Yeah, um, well, now I think, oh, God, is the second version so corny? didn't feel corny. I, mean, I just, there was some, I don't know, but there was an edge to the first, for mm -hmm. me, to the, to the first one that, uh, I don't know, just that sort of nervous, excited feeling, which uh, just makes me listen. Yeah, no, I think that's totally true. There's a bunch of, maybe we should hear, I want to play a couple different sections. So are your questions about this section, or can, or can they come, let's, let's hear a couple on different, because I just think the changes, this is the start of the piece. Um, 
This is the version Cherry Sun. For the first 24 hours, the pirate station broadcasts the sound of someone coughing nervously. An august beginning. It's not the dead air of the rural FM dial of the desertified Southwest. It's someone coughing nervously. Much nervousness at the beginning of the pirate station, and so much nervous coughing. The next Tuesday, a jazz band is convened so that jazz might be played live on the pirate station. None of these guys has ever had a lesson on this instrument. Three different kinds of jazz are discussed, but none are agreed upon. Cool jazz, smooth jazz, and Afro-Cuban jazz. The Pirate Station broadcasts the music of this ensemble for six days without ceasing. There's no agreed upon coda of the piece. The Pirate Station just pulls the plug. That fall, after weeks of casting about, a symphony is written by filling in notes at random on a staff. A local orchestra attempts to pick out the piece without rehearsal. However, the symphony is considered too sentimental for broadcast. Okay, so that's about the first two minutes. Um, here's <coughs> the next, the second. For the first 24 hours, the pirate station broadcasts the sound of someone coughing nervously. An august beginning. It's not the dead air of the rural FM dial of the desertified Southwest. It's someone coughing nervously. Much nervousness at the beginning of the pirate station and so much nervous coughing. The next Tuesday, a jazz band is convened so that jazz might be played live on the pirate station. None of these guys has ever had a lesson on this instrument. Three different kinds of jazz are discussed, but none are agreed upon. Cool jazz, smooth jazz, and Afro-Cuban jazz. Pirate Station broadcasts the music of this ensemble for six days without ceasing. There's no agreed upon coda. The Pirate Station just pulls the plug. That fall, after weeks of casting about, a symphony is written by filling in notes at random on a staff. A local orchestra attempts to pick out the piece without rehearsal. So then that doesn't. So what do you, what's different? Hi, I thought I'd um, share a couple of perspectives. Um, I was actually, I actually streamed this piece uh, last week for a class. And um, they had some really interesting Which reaction. Which um, the, uh, the one that's currently on uh, Resound on the website, okay, which is yeah, the, yeah. yeah. yeah which is the more spare yeah. um, piece. And they, they had some really interesting reactions. Um, it's, it's, it's a class in, in, uh, in, in, in radiophonic art, essentially. Mm 
wink, wink, right? Um, and they, they thought it was uh, so tightly constructed, and the reasons that it was pretty successful was that it was, you know, really not written for the page, but, you know, was written for the voice or for the ear. And, you know, that... That's interesting. I mean, Rick isn't here, because I, I wonder if... I... There was a lot of... There was much discussion on that, you know? Uh -huh. And so people really kind of unglued it, and they wanted to talk more about that. You know, it's 350 miles south of here, you know? But it was, an, it was an interesting 45 minutes um, that was spent kind of hashing out this, well, was it this, was it that? And, and I said, well, you know, from what I know of it, it was a you know, long-distance collaboration. Yeah. You know? And so it, it, it got a really good discussion going about that. But I think that the, you know, the elements that were going on you know, between these two versions we've been hearing, you know, the, the beginnings and the ends that you've played and shared with us, I think talk a great deal about the, kind of the perils of you know, distant collaboration and, and things like this. And I would hope it was the positives, not no, the yeah, perils. No, yeah, perils, the perils being, you know, good and bad and, yeah. and, and the end mix. Um, but I just wanted to share a few perspectives, you know, that the class said, well, you're going up there, you say something, <laughs> yeah, right? No, that's great. Um, you have, yeah? Yeah, I know we, we're running out of time, and just because I've just started work on a radio program where everybody is in different cities, essentially. Yeah. Uh, not a, a, a collaborative project like this, but yeah. actually a program. And I just wanted to ask, uh, it's more of the, about the nuts and bolts. Right. I mean, you had somebody way far off in Australia across, I don't know, 14 time zones or something like that. Of course, email is great, but in the end, oftentimes it's actually when you're actually putting together a piece or a show or whatever, it's the face-to-face, -face. it's being in the same place as someone or being able to feed off of, I mean, when you were actually doing the mixing, were you, did you actually have, um, I forget her name, Sherry. was she actually listening in over the phone? Or? No, we didn't, and I would say that was why it all worked out. Yeah. Ah. I would say, no, I mean, uh -huh. and I, I mean, I was just talking to her about this last night. I mean, I, I love Sherry Delise, but she doesn't, she didn't have, you know, there was a, a question early on was, Rick really wanted to be involved, and so Sherry and I went back and forth, like, is Sherry supposed to play Rick the sounds, you know, when she's putting them in? And initially, we were like, yeah. Then Sherry had a day and a half in the studio. How is she going to be able to do that? There's no way to do that. So we kind of just worked out this thing where, I mean, that's why when, I, when Sherry said that thing about the sand pit, I thought that was just so generous. So she could do her thing. She would do as much as she wanted to put in, and then, I mean, besides from our little, like, Pro Tools Mac nightmare, then she would give it to me, and I could do my thing. Um, and I, I know, I, I think sometimes, yes, you, you know, sit next to each other and, you know, listen, and that can work really well. I, I would certainly have had plenty of experiences of that when, but when you're short on time, and I also think, in my instance, of being scared of the piece, I know I wouldn't have done what I did to the piece if Sherry was there. I just, I would have been like, oh my God, Sherry, you know, can, you know, can I tell you that I don't think, you know, and I think, I mean, Sherry is so diplomatic and, you know, loves both versions and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I knew that the version that she sent, we wouldn't put it on our air. And it's not, it's, I don't mean to say, it, what I did was not huge, but as you guys all sort of notice, I just pulled things back. And like in the instance we just heard, you know, for me, it's two minutes into the piece, and there hasn't been, you keep, every time that piece, or the first time it aired, you looked up like, is something wrong? But when that, when that, but you, there's no silence, and it needed to have silence. I, like, I really found the first version, just, it was like, I, I couldn't hear any story, and I couldn't, without breaking it up. So, 
you know, those are the kind of things I did. But I do think because of the constricted time and because we, um, you know, I had like a day and a half to work on it. And I just decided, okay, I'll take her by a word because I, I didn't have contact with her until at the end. I think that we were able to get it done. In this, you know, it's just this one little story. Yeah. Um, I was struck actually by the difference between the two as being really quite profound. Yeah. Um, in that your version, I mean, I'm assuming that there's a Sherry Delise version and then there's yeah, an yeah, Emily the, Bottin the, version. It's, that's essentially what you're saying, is it? Because yeah. it comes down to the producer's control and the producer's vision and the sense of what's right and what works and what doesn't work. And in the first instance, obviously sitting on the dock of the bay, it's got the whistling. Maybe there's, it's a sort of a literal association with the whistles that feature throughout the piece. Um, but it brings too much baggage. And also the tones of the piano have their own kind of sense. Um, whereas the uh, Ingram Marshall, obviously, is um, it's sustained and it gives that sense of time, as was discussed. Um, and it's, ab it's more abstract. So your, your version clearly is much more... It's an abstraction. It's not a literal representation. So we don't get the coughing <laughs> in the, in, you know, at the beginning, which, for me, works better. Um, and I suppose my, uh, my interest is actually in at what point did you realise that you had to just follow your gut instinct and go with it rather than feel it's a collaboration, therefore we have to respect everyone's different perspective? Because right, no, it doesn't I, work, does it? Someone yeah. has to kind of say... That's this is I it. Was, that, I was trying to say that when I suddenly said you had to become the advocate for the piece. Like, I got this four-page notes. I started, like, going through them, being like, okay, I'll bring that down, blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, wait a sec. I, I know I'm the only person who knows what's going to air on the show, and I know this won't air. So it was – and for me, it was, like, going to that sitting in the dock of the bay and thinking, like, okay, I know, like, this is not going to work. So it's kind of like a lot of times you think about pieces in scenes or chapters. And so – I just went to the places that I knew didn't work, or, or for me, or, or that I, and so would change that. And then, you know, putting in that music was like, oh, I can, I can figure out how this might work for my ears, even though this is not a sort of um, genre that I feel particularly comfortable saying any, you know, speaking about with much knowledge, sort of whatever sound art is. Um, so. And, and I thought about that, like, the other thing is, I could never have done what Sherry did. Like, this piece wouldn't have, this piece wouldn't have gotten on the air, you know, in the next big thing, if I hadn't changed it the way I did. But I also could never have done the first step. Like, that to me was like, I literally had no idea how to approach this text. And she is, you know, people have said, has this incredible archive of sound knowledge. And there's like, you know, I'm not going to even play, but there are other areas where she put in the moon landing and all these, her mind is like just this incredible, it, it's so big in terms of where she, her head goes and spins. And so for me, it was just, it was like such a luxury to be able to pick and choose from that. But it was, and so I guess what I was saying is I've, I've tried to think about why is it, was it only when she sent the tape and I started, is it just like, because I feel at home in a Pro Tools session and like I don't feel that at home necessarily manipulating, you know, some writer's words, I think maybe, but I am not entirely sure of that. But it was definitely once I got the session in my hands and also once I said like, well, I have to make this work out for this show. Does that make any sense? No. Is there more questions? Yeah. 
Um, you sort of skipped over this. Who actually decided ultimately which takes of the uh, reading we use? Because that's key, isn't it? I did. Yeah. But that was also, I mean, you know, because I'm the person who, I, I think I could have, Sherry could have done that. But it was, it was sort of like it was a work issue. Like, I wanted to get some of the work done. Um, and as I said, you know, there wasn't a huge amount to work with. Um, but I, th I, and in fact, you know, I had thought about doing that with, with Rick, but again, it was just a time crunch. Um, and also, I don't think I would have wanted him, I mean, I, w I wanted to be the person who made that decision. Yeah. Just a quick, when you guys were in the studio, who gave John, like, direction? Like, who literally? Well, that's what I was trying to, like, I think, you know, it was both Rick and I, and I think we get it gave him contradictory directions. Like you and the headphones and him in the room? Kind Rick of? was in the booth with him. We put him in the booth, and yeah. I was, um, you can only hear, like, John is just responding to me. I, I was just on the talk back outside yeah. of the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't think we managed that that well. I mean, I don't think I managed that well. That, <laughs> that well. Um, but, it, you know, in the end, I, I would say just, um, for me, this was a totally worth it collaboration. And I would, you know, work with Rick and Sherry again. I think everyone felt that way. I don't know if any of you read um, Rick Moody's posting on Transom, um, I guess in the last month. And he wrote a little bit about Pirate Station. And he did say, and I'm sorry that he, he had to go to this reading. He said, um, I did compromise a little bit in the production of Pirate Station. And then he also says, if you don't compromise ever, you never learn anything. Um, and I am curious. I, I don't actually, I haven't asked him, so how did you compromise? Um, my sense is he would say something about, you know, in the end, it was, I felt almost like it was a conversation between Sherry and I, and, and not a conversation at the same time. And we've, we've talked about it. It was like, you do your thing. It was like an in tandem conversation. It was like we were, um, you know, she did her thing and then I did I think. But I, I am curious. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know exactly what um, what Rick meant by compromising, but I do know, you know, that I would do it again, and I, I think that Sherry would do it again, even if um, she said to me, "There's always that moment when you first hear, like when I first heard what what you did, yeah. it was like, that's not the piece." <laughs> <laughs> but I think we, you know, we both had fun on it. Are there more questions? I'm just I just, time I just had a comment more than a question, but I, had, I felt very different about both pieces, and I thought they were profoundly different. And part of it's just the interpretation of the piece, and part of what I liked about <coughs> listening to your piece the first time through, not ever having heard it before, was it's, it's sort of an experience of understanding what the pirate station is. And that whole coming, you know, grappling with what is this piece actually about, like just the content of it. And coming to sort of understand what the pirate station might mean in, in a whole bunch of metaphorical ways, I accomplished that much more in your piece at the end is actually when I really started to piece it together for me, what is the pirate station? Which was my big question the whole time. And listening to the beginning of Sh Sherry's yeah, piece. Yeah, I mean, it's not really fair the way I'm playing it, but yeah. No, well, it's not, a, it's not picking or choosing. Right, right. It's like a completely different interpretive journey because understanding what the pirate station is in her piece is completely different for me. And it's, and it's enjoyable and it's wonderful. But the pirate station has a different metaphorical power. So by the end, when you are you, in your piece, when it becomes much quieter and his voice becomes much more amplified, 
the whole idea of the human being as their own radio station, which is actually what Sherry is. I mean, she's this ultimate mm -hmm. receptor and transmitter of sound. And that making that connection between, which I'd, I wouldn't have gotten to, but I would have enjoyed the piece totally as this mystical experience of the pirate station, this just experience more than interpretive journey. Mm -hmm. And so that idea of the human being, you know, which becomes more and more through the piece, the pirate station becomes much more anthropomorphized. It's like a person at the end. Mm -hmm. And that whole idea of making that connection wouldn't have happened to me in the, in the other version, though I enjoyed the sound so much. Mm -hmm. Anyway, for what it's worth. Yeah, no, I mean, I think all I did was let Sherry's version breathe. Okay. I think we're, I mean, I'm at 1230. <laughs> Johanna, is that right? <laughs> I'm supposed to be on time. <laughs>